the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, events conspire against time travelers trying to skip years ending in 7 and 9. Cranberry jump drives and space-adapted turkeys. Plus, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. And I'm Bain Editorial Assistant Christopher Rocchio. Say happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. This time we finish up our most excellent interview with David Weber, uh, talking about his great new entry in the Honor Harrington series, Shadow of Victory. This is part three of our three-part interview, which you know what that makes this, Christopher? Uh, is this our first uh, complete trilogy? It's a trilogy, that's right. <laughs> All right, so uh, get ready for that. We also continue with a complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. Now, here's the news. Gobble, gobble, turkey day, and our favorite holiday in publishing arrive. Of course, I'm talking about Black Friday. What a great year it's been for Bain. And remember, you can buy books that are already published for Christmas. Yes, this is a truth worth repeating. 2016 has seen Eric Flint's David Drake's David Weber's, Larry Correa's, John Ringo's, Larry Correa's and John Ringo's, David Weber's and Eric Flint's. So many other great books, too, that uh, we've put out this year. Coming in December in hardcover is one of those Korea and Ringo mashups, Monster Hunter Memoirs, Sinners. It's book two in this cool sub-series in Larry Correa's Monster Hunter universe. And speaking of Monster Hunter, we have a special leather-bound edition of Monster Hunter International just coming out. Wow, this would make a great Christmas present, or just a little something for your own stocking. We're going to be putting out the entire Monster Hunter main series in these leather-bound volumes over the next couple of years. It would be a beautiful thing to arrange these pretty monsters all in a row on your shelf. That's just the taste of what's coming. It's going to be a grand holiday season and a happy new year. And you can contribute to damming the thermodynamic leakage of order into chaos by doing your part and reading lots and lots of great books. We're here to help. Happy Thanksgiving and a lovely Black Friday to all. This is part three of a three-part interview with David Weber discussing his new Honor Harrington novel, Shadow of Victory. Parts one and two are available on previous podcasts. I want to welcome David Weber back to the podcast. Hello, David. Hello, Tony. So David Weber is the creator of the internationally best-selling Honor Harrington series and the Honorverse. Uh, David's Honor Harrington science fiction novels have sold millions of copies over the years. David is also the author of many, many other Bain books, including Epic Fantasy, uh, Basel series entry like The Sword of the South, which uh, starts a, a new sub-series within that series. It's a, it's a great book. That's coming out uh, very soon in uh, Mass Market, by the way. He's the co-author of lots of books, too, with Timothy Zahn and Thomas Pope. He's the creator of the Manticore Ascendant series. That's an honorverse book, including Call to Duty and A Call to Arms. 
And lately with Joel Presby, he's uh, continued his multiverse science fiction and fantasy blend series with uh, book three, The Road to Hell. David has had, I think, Marla counted 28 New York Times bestsellers. And there are over eight and a half million David Weber books in print. The latest entry in the Honor Harrington series is a solo novel by David Weber. That book is Shadow of Victory and is now at booksellers everywhere. Well, let's, speaking of your heroes, let's talk about a few of the Manticoran characters in the book, just to, uh, to, to end with, perhaps. Um, the, uh, we have Mike uh, Hinky, the, the Admiral Goldpeak. Uh, Michelle Hinky. Michelle, sorry. Yes. And, uh, and we have some lower level uh, characters like Hel Helen Zellwicky. Um, yeah. who have a big part in the book. And we also have a really heroic uh, woman in uh, Sinead, um, Tarakov, right? Yeah, Sinead Tarakov. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, I, well, I see, I knew from the time that I did Shadow of Saganami, I knew who Sinead was, okay? I mean, I knew who she was, not just, okay, it's a name here. And I hoped that I hope that the readers got a feel for that in the opening sequence with uh, with her husband Abars, um, where he's having the nightmare, and and he awakes from it, and and how she's you know helping him deal with it and his reaction to it. But I she she does several things in the book in addition to being the, the character that she is, if the reader looks carefully, they will discover that she is directly descended from two of the characters in the Manticore Ascendant novels. Uh -huh. <laughs> okay. So I just throw that out for anybody who wants to go look and figure out who it is. Um, but she is. She is, uh, she is one of my favorite characters in the book. I really like Avar's. Her husband. He gets a promotion, doesn't he? Oh, yes. Well, he's going to get more, too. I mean, you know, he's he's good. But he also has originated. He's probably the, 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 the two readers like to have, what are your favorite one-line comments out of the books competitions? And the two that come in in first and second place over and over again, they flip occasionally. Our Shannon Foraker's oops when she has just sent the code that blows up the 12 uh, SS super dreadnoughts to protect her fleet commander and whatnot from political arrest and murder. And she sits back from her, she looks up from her console as everybody else is staring at the display where these super dreadnoughts have just suddenly exploded. She looks up and she looks up her shoulder and she says, oops. Okay, that's one of their favorite lines. But the other one is is uh, Avars Tarakov talking to the uh, the Solarian gendarme who's offering to murder 30 million prisoners uh, if he doesn't back off and let them restore control of the planet. And he's just launched this kinetic penetrator that is going to completely take out this, this huge residential tower that she's in the middle of but she doesn't know it yet and he looks at her and he says why is it that people like you always think you're more ruthless than people like me um and she's still trying to figure out what he means when poof, you know it, it blows her up but i really like avars avars is um 
He's somebody who has been very, very badly wounded, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually, um, and who has in some ways come back from it stronger and in other ways has not come back from it at all. Um, he is uh, a, a brilliant uh, naval commander. He has a feel for politics, which is remarkable, partly because he spent quite a few years in the foreign office before returning to take up his, his commission when the war broke out. And Shined is his anchor. She is his lifeline and a very remarkable person in her own right. She's an artist. She is uh, a multifaceted, very accomplished person. But it is their mutual love for one another that upholds both of them. Uh, and I tried to show that uh, in, in this book. I also, you know, his relationship with, with for example, Helen Zawicki, his, his flag lieutenant, to my mind, is summed up most clearly when she has to come and tell him that uh, the entire crew of the Hexapuma, the heavy cruiser that they've been to Helen back in in uh, the first book, uh, The Shadow of Saganami, was destroyed with all hands. And she's trying to, to get the words out, and they just won't come. And so this this guy who is now a flag officer, uh, uh, a knight, you know, the whole nine the whole nine yards, he realizes what she's trying to say, and he just puts his arms around her and hugs her because that's what she needs at that moment, and that's as natural to him as breathing, just as blowing away uh, Francesca, what's her name, the the gendarme general. Uh, was that's who he was, okay? So I, I really like him. Uh, I really like Helen. Um, oh, and for those who wonder why I spent so much time with Damien Harahap, I will simply say that I envision him as having a very significant role in the ongoing story past the end of the storyline that began with Basilisk Station. Um, Further than that, opponents sayeth not uh, at this time. But there is a reason why I spent so much time with him um, and why I spent so much time with uh, Indiana Graham uh, and his sister. And I would also say, for those who, who may not know, uh, Indy and, uh, and Max um, are named for the son, younger son and a uh, younger daughter of one of my very dear friends, uh, Bruce Graham. And we lost Indy to cancer just before his 21st birthday. And he put up one hell of a fight. He really did. And so the Indiana of my novels is kind of a ch case of giving Indy a chance to grow up um, and to be who he would have been. Um, so in that respect, that whole storyline is a gift from me to Bruce and Tracer, uh, his, his parents, who produced a truly remarkable uh, young man. And 
So anyway, well, that's wonderful that you can. But and, and in the uh, going forward, Andy uh, and uh, and and the rest of our our folks, um, what are we going to see? Uh, are we going to have a full-on war with the Solarian League, or are we just have to wait and see? Or what's what? What's coming? What might you well, hint will, at will, that's coming up? At least this: the original, the original plot line that began with Basilisk Station was supposed to end pretty much with Honor's death um, in the uh, in the Second Battle of Manticore, where I flipped her role with Alistair McKeon because Eric Flint, affectionately known as Eric the Red. Um, in writing the Victor Kasha Anton Zilwicky storyline had pulled my plans for the Mason alignment forward by about 25, 30 years, actually closer to 50. Um, and I couldn't kill Honor off and then let her children deal with the, the, uh, the Mason threat. So the storyline that began with Basilisk Station will end in the next mainstream honor novel, uh, which will then leave the Star Empire and the Republic of Haven dealing with the aftermath of the war against the Solarian League. And the fact that they're dealing with the aftermath should suggest to you who wins. (laughs) Because if they lost, they wouldn't be dealing with anything. Um, But also with this ongoing problem of the Mason alignment that they believe in and nobody else does. They believe that there is still this threat out there somewhere. Uh, And nobody in the Solarian League, well, okay, a lot of people in the Solarian League, but the decision makers and so forth in the Solarian League and Solarian League public opinion doesn't believe that the that the that the onion of the Mason alignment truly exists, um, and so there will be ongoing books in the Honorverse, which will probably deal with with some of that thread, but it will also be uh, a point at which I can go and write some of the other books that I've wanted to write in the Honorverse for a long time. For example, I really, really want to write the book of Alfred Harrington's Military Service. If you've read the the short story slash novella Beauty and the Beast in the last anthology, you know how Alfred and Allison Harrington met. And you get some clues as to why Alfred is a doctor. And you also find out that this big, gentle tree that Honor Harrington grew up in the in the shade of Alfred Harrington, you know, this, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, was actually a more dangerous person than his daughter, in a lot of ways. Um, well, it's kind of hard to be more dangerous than Honor, <laughs> but I guess so. Well, he, he 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 could have pulled it off, okay, if you'd given him a super dreadnought uh, instead of uh, a pulse rifle because he was a marine, not a not a naval officer. Uh, but if you'd given him a super dreadnought, oh man, it could have got ugly. Um, you know, several points in the book, honor has re- in the books, honor has reflected on the fact that under slightly different circumstances. She could have been a monster, and she's right. 
uh, her 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 aptitude for violence, which is tempered and controlled and to a great extent by the this deep underlying compassion that's part of her, which was which she learned from parents, uh, including Alfred, the potential killer. Um, that tempers that aptness for violence. But she is uh, a classic example of potential wolf who chooses instead to be the sheepdog, uh, the guard dog. Um, she has found a way to invest her capacity for violence, her, her, her capacity to devise uh, uh, strategic plans, tactical maneuvers to inspire her subordinates to follow her straight through the gates of hell kind of thing is put to a, a highly beneficial end. Um, and I think that's critical to understanding who Honor Harrington is. I think that the reader sometimes forgets the scene in uh, Honor Among Enemies where she shoots uh, a prisoner of war out of hand without a trial. She simply misses because somebody else shoves her arm at the last minute. But she literally was in cold blood going to shoot and kill an unarmed prisoner of war. And because the reader loathed this guy so much and knew he deserved to get shot so much, most of the readership is going, you go, girl. <laughs> you know, you go. They don't recognize what to me is a fundamental part of that scene, which is that as Hamish Alexander tells Honor early, early in the books, it may be in uh, Honor of the Queen, she has the defects of her virtues. Another way to put it might be that she has made virtues of her defects, but that capacity of hers for concentrated violence and for the coldly precise way she can go about it. Those can be good things when they are channeled properly, and they can be awful things when they aren't. And Honor has pretty much succeeded in channeling them properly because of her parents and because of Nimitz. Um, and now because of uh, Alfred and Emily and other people that she's known and loved along the way. But one thing that I was very insistent in my own mind about when I began this series was that there are consequences for the sorts of things uh, that Honor has done and has had done to her. Uh, consequences in scars that you acquire. I mean, you know, in, in uh, Flag in Exile, she basically had had a complete mental breakdown that she's recovering from. Um, I don't know that, you know, I'm not sure how many readers remember that. Um, Honor has paid a horrible price to get to where she is in the books. And I think the thing that makes it even more horrible from her perspective is that faced with the same decisions, she'd make them the same way a second time because it's who and what she is. Um, 
And I'm sure that's a cheery note. On- <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that, I think that uh, a nice reflection on honor is an excellent way to close. Um, so let us do that if you're okay with uh, I'm fine. what we've achieved. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, the book is Shadow of Victory by David Weber, and it's now out at booksellers everywhere. David, uh, thank you so much for once again being with us on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. It seems Cinnabar's chief spymaster is a mother also, and her son is determined to search for treasure in the midst of a civil war. Who better to hold the boy's hand and to take the blows directed at him than Captain Daniel Leary, the Republic of Cinnabar Navy's troubleshooter, and his friend the cyberspy Adele Mundy? The only thing certain in the struggle for control of the mining planet Corsera is that the rival parties are more dangerous to their own allies than to their opponents. Daniel and Adele face kidnappers, pirates, and a death squad even before they can get to the real business of ending the war on Corsera and bringing their charge home, maybe along with ancient alien treasure. Now here is the next entry of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. Jezreel on Ischia The main hatch began to grind downward. It hadn't jammed again, but it still vibrated badly every time it opened. Steam and ozone swirled through the rear compartment and onto the bridge, but they had no effect save for occasional sneezes. Adele got up stiffly. Vessie quickly took her place on the couch. She would command the Kaisha while Daniel was heading the negotiations with the Monfioris. Daniel arched his shoulders backward to stretch his torso. Time to meet our hosts, I think, he said. Hogg grunted, his hands thrust deep into his pockets. Tovera said nothing, but her eyes flicked to Adele and away. The last member of the negotiating team was Cazalet, who stood stiffly by the hatch to the stern compartment. He wore new utilities which, for a spacer on a tramp, were dress clothes. He had the business expertise which the task required, though he had admitted that he was uncomfortable bargaining for lives. Adele wasn't sure how long she had been sitting at the console. That was the beauty of losing herself in work, of course. It took her from a world of human realities to one of information, which was much more to her liking. Aches and stiffness were far down the list of aspects of the real world which she found uncomfortable. Six, said Corey. He could now move to the command console, but he apparently didn't want to leave whatever he was doing at the flat plate display. There's a four-inch plasma cannon aimed at the harbor from the hillside to port. It isn't new. It must have been there for decades. And it isn't netted into the defense computer, so I can't switch it off. Officer Mundy, said Daniel. He grinned. Does he know, or is he just guessing? There is an icon on our displays beside the gunnery lockout. Adele said. If it is activated, and I don't expect that to happen unless I do it, the power goes out in the Jezreel community. The cannon has a backup generator, but that will not switch on. Thank you, Officer Mundy, Daniel said. Hmm, Lady Mundy, I think, for this purpose. Please walk beside me down the ramp. Adele nodded and followed him through the hatch. The rest of team fell in behind. 
The spacers in the rear compartment held submachine guns and stocked impellers. Apparently, the order that the crew shouldn't carry guns outside had convinced them to be armed while still on the freighter. Heaven help us if Evans starts shooting. Daniel stepped close to Wochins and whispered something, then strode toward the entry hatch without the pause Adele had expected. She hopped after him to catch up so that they stepped onto the ramp together. Behind them, she heard the bosun bellow. All right, sissies, hand your guns to Hale right bloody now and she'll unload them. Then slide them back into the arms locker, got it? Now. Some risks, Daniel said, are unavoidable. Being shot in the back by your own people shouldn't be one of them. The sunlight was pleasant. Adele didn't usually have an opinion about landscapes, but Jezreel seemed, well, nice. Most harbors were cesspools, literally. Ships emptied waste into the water, and often the city's sewers drained into it. The plasma exhaust from ships landing and lifting incinerated the floating organic materials and mixed the smoke with steam to form a thick miasma. The flow from upstream must flush the pool constantly, said Daniel with approval. He must have been thinking the same thing that Adele was. And of course, there hasn't been much movement through Jezreel because of the slowdown in trade. A delegation of four locals waited at the head of the floating pier, which they had extended to the Kaisha's starboard pontoon. They looked grim-faced, but they weren't obviously armed. The fifty or more men whom Adele could see among the houses up the slope from the harbor, and about half the similar number of women, did carry guns openly. The buildings themselves had walls of cast concrete and roofs of structural plastic, but gardens and window boxes softened their appearance. Rather a pleasant little community, Daniel remarked cheerfully as they walked down the ramp. I'm sure that you and I can work matters out with them. You always think that, said Adele. And I've always been right, said Daniel. Well, I've usually been right. In a louder voice, he said, Gentlemen, I'm Captain Leary, and this is Lady Mundy, both of Cinnabar. We're here to talk about the Corsairan envoys whom you're holding. I'm Elder Paul, replied the man of fifty, one of the pair in the center. These are three of my counselors. We know your reputation, Leary, if... Paul's voice, never friendly, became as harsh as a war cry. You think you're going to waltz in here and steal our prisoners away, you'd better think again. Adele imagined that she was watching on a display. She absorbed information better that way than she did if she had to think about interacting directly with other human beings. She hadn't told anyone else about her trick, but all people needed to know about her methods was that they worked. I'm sorry that I have the reputation of being a fool, Daniel said mildly. I volunteered to come here because it appeared to me that your demands could be accommodated without difficulty. And of course, I'm neutral as to the political situation on Corsera. There are parties in Brotherhood who would just as soon that the envoys didn't return. He smiled knowingly at Paul. As you have probably guessed by now yourselves, he added. But is there a place we could sit down while we discuss? I'd offer my ship, but I'm afraid the only space large enough on the Kaisha is the hold, and the amenities there are rather spartan. We'll go up to my house, Paul said. The meeting room's there. He turned and started up the path toward the buildings. He was scowling, but that might have been an embarrassment at the way he had greeted Daniel. His voice had lost its harsh rasp. Do they meet our terms or don't they? 
said one of the counselors, a man of seventy with a long face and eyebrows bushy enough to make up for his baldness. He glared at Paul. I don't see there's much bloody discussion to have. I believe we can accommodate your requirements, yes, Daniel said as though the question had been directed to him, as it should have been, Adele thought. But Commissioner, matters must be much simpler here than they are back on my family estate if you believe that a negotiation like this has a yes or no answer. Lewis, snapped the elder Paul, if you think this meeting's a waste of your time, why don't you go mind your corn and the rest of us will talk to these parties from Cinnabar? The old man looked aside. In a low voice, he said, My corn's doing just fine, same as it's done since before you was born, Paul Monfiore. The path led past a group of men, one of whom was missing his left leg below the knee. Most were tattooed. The name Schleiman on a biceps between a pair of nymphs was probably the RCN heavy cruiser of that name. Good morning, spacers, Daniel said, nodding pleasantly. A few muttered, sir, and one even attempted a salute. They shifted their bodies so that the carbines they carried were less obvious. A pair of women sat on the front stoop of the house nearest the harbor. One was knitting while her younger companion suckled a baby. The older woman tugged her ball of pale blue yarn a little to cover the butt of the service pistol in her knitting basket. Adele supposed she might have followed Daniel's lead and said something friendly to the woman, but she had no more experience with that sort of small talk than she did with knitting. She prepared to nod crisply and pass on. On New Year's Day, Adele's mother had distributed gift baskets to the wives of popular party workers. When Adele turned 12, Esme Rolf Mundy had decided that they would hand out the baskets together. Adele had been a quiet, if not precisely dutiful daughter, but her refusal to undergo that experience had finally convinced even her mother. Perhaps I should have viewed it as a learning experience, which would aid me in my RCN career, Adele thought. She smiled, and the two women smiled back. The elder Paul turned toward a house halfway along the road into which the path expanded. Its frontage was about the same as those to either side, but it had been dug farther back into the hillside. A young man with Paul's features pulled the door open and held it as the elder and counselors, then the Cinnabar contingent, entered. There was a cloakroom to either side of the front door. Past the door, in the partition wall, was a meeting room with chairs for fifty people to sit. The seats were full, and there seemed to be nearly as many others standing. Even so... It was only a fraction of Jezreel's adult population. Paul led the way down the central aisle toward the dais. There were six folding chairs, identical to those on the floor of the hall. Paul and his counselors took the four in the middle. Adele hesitated. Daniel stood by the chair on the left end of the row and bowed Adele toward the other empty, making a courtly sweep with his right arm. Hogg and Tovera seated themselves on the edge of the dais, facing the audience with smiles on their faces. Adele sat down. Hogg looked crazed, and Tovera's expression was that of a demon. At least the audience was being given fair warning. I suppose it's up to me to kill the four on the dais, Adele thought. Though Daniel will certainly be knocking heads together if the Monfiores decide to attack. The idea made her smile. That in turn made her wonder whether she more resembled Hogg or Tovera. She smiled still wider. If the audience was a fair sample, people in Jezreel were tall and lanky, with a tendency toward red hair and long jaws. 
Adele took out her data unit but restrained herself from checking on inbreeding within Ischia's separate clans. Paul rose to his feet. All right, he said. We've been waiting for the Corsairan representatives. Here they are, only they're from Cinnabar. Doesn't seem to me that there's anything for us to talk about till we hear what they've got to say. He turned to look down at Daniel. Captain Leary, you claim you're going to accommodate our requirements. Those were the words you used. Tell us how. Paul didn't use or need an amplifier. The hall had good acoustics, and Paul had apparently trained his lungs by bellowing across the valley or similar rural pursuits. Adele had nothing in common with the audience in this hall, but she suspected Daniel, or Hogg, or any other Bantry resident did. When Paul sat down, Daniel rose and reversed his chair. He put his right foot on the seat. With his hand on the chair back, he said, Thank you, elder and counselors. He nodded toward them, then faced the audience again. And thank you, citizens, for the chance to speak with you. I told the Corsairan Council that I was sure you and I could work matters out. Your elder, Daniel gestured toward Paul, though he didn't take his eyes and his smile from the audience, told me that he knew my reputation. Well, I hope I understand you better than he understood me, because I think that you Monfioris are traitors and honest spacers, some of the best there are. I'm pretty sure I recognized some of my old RCN shipmates as I walked up from the harbor. I wonder if that's true. It was possible, certainly, and the underlying implication of the statement was true, that Ischia and Cinnabar had no quarrel with one another. What the Monfioris aren't, Daniel said, raising his voice slightly, is pirates, until now. And I believe that if you're offered an honest deal, you'll stop being pirates. The uproar in the hall was to be expected. The anger in it surprised Adele, though, enough that she held her left hand above her tunic pocket. They really don't think of themselves as pirates, she realized, and they certainly don't like to be reminded that what they did on Dace was piracy, by their standards as well as by Daniel's. Everybody sit down, Paul said, rising to his feet. Daniel remained where he was. Sit down and shut up. This is a business meeting, not a lynching. The room settled with the scrape of chair legs on the floor and the whisper of angry breathing. Paul turned to Daniel and said, You're here to negotiate. Let's hear more of that and fewer insults. Daniel nodded pleasantly. Ischia has been treated very badly in the past two years, he said. By fate, certainly, but especially by the new government of Pantelleria. Among the things which haven't screwed you over, however, are the independent Corsairans. We offered them a fair deal, said the counselor to Paul's right. Adele scrambled through data, but without images, she couldn't tell whether the speaker was Counselor Maurice or Counselor Patrick. It was something to concentrate on. Yes, sir, you did, Daniel said, glancing over his shoulder and giving Patrick or Maurice a friendly nod. But it's a deal that they couldn't accept and still get the weapons they need to fight the Pantelarians. The same bastards who were screwing Ischia, and in particular screwing you, Monfiori's. You used to be able to trade with Corsera at fair rates for both sides, not so? The counselors, including Lewis, nodded. There were murmurs of agreement from the audience. We need trade, Paul said. His voice was harsh, but he remained seated. Fairness is fine and justice is fine, but we have to feed our children. Agreement rolled across the room like surf rushing to the shore. Instead of waiting for it to subside, Daniel raised both arms, palms outward. I agree, he said, 
Even more loudly, he repeated, I agree. I'm offering you trade with Dunbar's world. The noise in the hall broke into chaos, rising and falling. Daniel waited where he stood, both hands on the chair back. The elder Paul rose and tried to speak into Daniel's ear. Adele doubted that Daniel could understand the words, but the sight of the two leaders trying to talk made the babble of the audience subside. Paul turned to face his people again. Quiet, he said with his hands raised. Quiet so that I can ask Leary a question. In the relative silence, he turned to Daniel and said, I know about Dunbar's world, all the trades held by Cinnabar. Are you committing the government of Cinnabar in this deal? Off-planet trade with Dunbar's world is held by a cartel of Cinnabar companies, not by the government of the Republic itself, Daniel said. There are five trading companies involved. Two of them are owned by Corder Leary, my father. He spoke toward the audience. If he had boomed the answer directly at Paul, the elder would have reacted subconsciously to a threat, even though he knew intellectually that it was not hostile. Now, Daniel continued over the excited babble, the audience had understood that Daniel had said that Corder Leary would do what his son requested. That most certainly was not true. I've got some clout on Dunbar's world myself. I was able to help the current government with a problem, a war, a war they were losing until Daniel intervened. They were having a few years ago. That will help you on Dunbar's world. As for the Cinnabar cartel, my colleague Lady Mundy has come here with full authority to negotiate on behalf of all Leary Enterprises. That's correct, said Adele. She raised her data unit. I have this authority. Nobody can hear me. Hogg stood and made a megaphone of his hands. She's got it, he boomed. Any bloody thing the mistress says is true. But she's a lady, see? And she's not going to scream her lungs out for yobs like me and you. There was no logical reason that Hogg's statement should be taken as authoritative, but it was. There was a gush of laughter. Then the audience quieted again. Now, Daniel resumed, I'm telling you that the existing cartel and the government of Dunbar's world are going to back the deal. I'm not telling you that you won't have trouble on the ground with ship owners and dock gangs who liked things the way they were before. I guess we can handle that, said the elder Paul. I guess we bloody well can, replied a burly tattooed man in the audience. Adele's lips quirked upward. Come on, sunshine, if you think you're hard enough. How often have I run into that attitude since I became a sissy? Daniel crooked his finger toward Adele. She put the data unit away and joined him and Paul, and the three counselors by the time she got there. Cazalet waited at the edge of the dais, and the two servants stood with their backs to their principals, beaming at the milling audience. Elder Paul, Daniel said, Lady Mundy will present her credentials, but her aide, Lieutenant Cazalet, will be handling the detailed negotiations. For myself, I wonder if you'd mind if I took a look at your community. It reminds me of Bantry, where I grew up. I'll have my son Georgie take you wherever you want to go, Leary, Paul said. Louis, the rest of us will adjourn to your sitting room. The mob here isn't going to break up any time soon, and I want to get this agreement down as quick as we can. Chapter 18 Jezreel on Ischia I'm Georgie, said the man who'd held the door of the elder's house when the delegation entered. My father said you wanted to see Jezreel? Daniel clasped hands with him. They were much of an age, but Monfiore was taller by a head and probably didn't weigh, 
Daniel thought ruefully, any more than Daniel did. I'd like to get out of here, Daniel said, making a minute gesture, his hand close to his body, towards the locals clumping to chatter in the street outside the elder's house. And frankly, I'd prefer to see some of the countryside rather than houses. Even very nice houses don't interest me very much. A number of the locals were watching them intently. A woman looked as though she were about to join them, but Georgie's glare thrust her back. She wore a floral bonnet and sashes of red and green crossed over a dull yellow dress. The cut of the garments was closer than those Daniel had grown up with. But the color sense of Jezreel residents was identical to that of Bantry peasants dressed in their best clothes. Daniel glanced at Hogg, who shrugged and said, Guess I'll look around some on my own. There might be a poker game somewheres. Shall I get the air car? Georgie said. It's around the back. I don't think we should go any distance, Daniel said. But if we could wander down to the riverbank, that would be relaxing. From here, it looks remarkably unspoiled. Georgie laughed. Above the town, yes, he said, as he took them toward the head of the street. The shipyard is three kilos downstream, and that isn't so pristine. Though there hasn't been much construction recently, so even that isn't a waste pond. He walked at a swinging pace, which did as much to fend off would-be companions as the hard look he gave those they passed. Daniel kept up without difficulty. There wasn't much room for walking on the Kaisha, but he and Hogg had been tramping the whole of the Bantry estate since he was six years old. Climbing the rigging to view the Matrix kept him more fit on shipboard than he was after staying in Zeno's. They left the road for a path slanting down toward the river. Short logs, or in one case a squared stone block, reduced the slope in a few places, but it was still meant for pedestrians moving in file. I noticed that you weren't carrying a gun when we arrived, Daniel said as they neared the river. A similar path bordered the water in both directions. I gather Hogg noticed also, which is why he didn't stick with me. Georgie grunted. Because he didn't think that I could kill you with my bare hands? he asked without looking over his shoulder. Because he thought you weren't stupid, Daniel said. They'd reached the riverbank. I suppose he meant it as a compliment. Sorry, Georgie said. He stopped and met Daniel's eyes. It wasn't father's idea, but he went along with it. Schweitzer said that we needed to put the fear of heaven into you right at the start, or you'd run roughshod over us. Let's walk upstream, Daniel said, gesturing. The current was slow, in part because the dam and pool had raised the level above it as well. But you didn't agree with Master Schweitzer? I captain the freighter Bird Girl, Georgie said. She's there in the pool. He gestured. The six Iskian ships were indistinguishable from this angle, but that itself was sufficient identification. I was on Tumblr when the Heimdall landed in the naval harbor on her way to join Admiral Peterson's fleet, Georgie continued. I guess if you're not afraid of a battleship, we're not going to scare you with small arms. Daniel laughed. I bloody well was afraid of the Heimdall, he said. I was in the cruiser Milton at Cacique, and I don't know any cruiser captain who wouldn't be ready to foul himself trading salvos with a battleship. He cleared his throat and said, But no, a group of armed civilians weren't going to affect my negotiations. Well, I'm sorry, Georgie said, his eyes lowered. I told father we'd be making fools of ourselves, but he hasn't been off-planet since before I was born. He's not stupid, but he thinks in terms of... He spread his arms in a double gesture. This valley, and maybe Ischia, he doesn't... 
Well, he's seen your record, but he didn't see the Heimdall, and he doesn't know what the record means. I'm glad things worked out like they have. Daniel squatted. Bright green plants rose out of the water and grew on the boggy margin of the path. The stems were five-sided, and the oval leaves sprang from each side in turn as they spiraled upward. Attached to an outcrop thrusting into the river was what looked like a small version of the sponge he had seen in the pond in front of the manor in Brotherhood. Daniel set his left palm on the rock and leaned his weight onto it. Careful there, Georgie said. That pinky gray firepot there will give you hell's own bite. Your whole arm will be swelled up for a week, and you'll feel it in your joints every time the weather changes for the rest of your life. They're local here, Daniel said. He lowered his face carefully toward the water to peer closer. He thought he could see bronze specks the size of wheat grains, junior versions of the parasites on the sponge on Coursera. Anywhere there's fresh water, Georgie said. They're a nuisance if you're going to be swimming or watering your stock, but other than that, they're not a problem. The shellbacks keep them down. Standing behind Daniel, he leaned over also. There's one, you see, he said, pointing to the upstream side of the rock. A darkly iridescent oval the size of a man's palm rubbed close to what was here a firepot. Daniel had taken it for the top of another rock until Georgie called it to his attention. Scores of legs, Daniel saw mostly the motion through a foot of flowing water, rippled along the edges of the creature. The shellback wasn't doing anything immediately obvious, but the adjacent patch of the sponge's body was bare of cilia. Daniel stood up in two stages, making sure that Georgie had enough warning to move back. I sometimes think of becoming a naturalist when I retire, he said, smiling broadly to his guide. But that's a long time to come, I hope, and I'm not really organized enough to do a proper job of that. Though if Adele should retire at the same time, there'd be a chance for some rigorously reported, first-rate fieldwork on planets which nobody else had given more than a glance at. Captain, said Georgie, turning to face Daniel. For a moment, he seemed on the verge of saluting. I want you to know that I oppose the whole idea. Like you said, we Montfiori's are spacers, traitors. We're not pirates. He bowled his fists. Daniel listened with a friendly smile, ready to react if Montfiori got carried away and swung at whatever happened to be closest. My father said that sometimes an elder has to make hard decisions to save his people, Georgie said. I say that if being elder means being a criminal, then somebody else can have the job. I'll go to Plaisance and sign on as a wiper on one of their ships. Daniel thought of the decisions he made regularly, as an RCN officer and as a man. Many people had died because of those decisions. Some of the dead were his own personnel, and some were innocent of anything except being in the wrong place when Daniel Leary had a task to accomplish. Daniel continued to smile. It's over, he said. At least I trust that it's over. I think that the deal offered is fair, and I'm sure that your fellow citizens will see that it is. I wouldn't bet, Georgie said, smiling also, that a general meeting of my fellow citizens would be able to agree on what day of the month it was. But I'll swear to you that I'll do whatever I can to end our descent into piracy. A siren began to wind from the tower on the roof of the elder's house. Georgie glanced up and said, Speaking of general meetings, that's the call. Most people will be taking part by computer, but I need to get back to the hall. By heaven, we're going to accept your offer, or I'll know the reason why. 
I certainly hope you do, Daniel said, following Georgie up the path as quickly as they had come down it, regardless of the slope. And if you don't, I'm confident that the same offer made to a consortium of three or four neighboring clans will convince them to attack you, and I'll get the prisoners back that way. It was what Cordeliri and his distant Leary ancestors would have done if it were necessary to accomplish a mission. Adele shut down her data unit and rose from the table in Counselor Louis Hulper's kitchen. Cazalet and the Foriskian officials remained seated. Tovera smiled sardonically. She stood against the concrete outer wall between the door and the window, a casement with six panes. Through the door to the sitting room, it didn't have a table for the locals to place their large data units, so the negotiators were in the kitchen. Holper's wife, Mitzi, nervously pretended to dust knickknacks on egg crate display shelving. It was a pleasant little home for the two of them, and surprisingly neat given that the decision to adjourn here had been spur of the moment. Do any of you see a reason that I should remain with you? Adele said. Her tone and the fact she was standing made her own opinion clear, though she was quite willing to make it more clear if someone pressed her. I can't imagine that we will, Lady Mundy, Cazalet said, before the locals could offer an opinion. The rest of the business should be quite straightforward. Shall I call you at the ship if something comes up? The only thing Adele could do that Cazalet couldn't was to kill everyone in the house. That shouldn't be necessary, though if Adele had to endure more drivel about freight rates, it was a possible result. All the more reason for her to leave. In other circumstances, Adele might have worried about leaving her agent unsupported in a room with four opponents. But Cazalet's background made him far more sophisticated than the Iskians. Nor were they going to browbeat one of Captain Leary's officers. No, I think I'll visit the prisoners, she said aloud. Master Holper, could your wife guide me, please? What? said the counselor. What? Mitzi? The lady here wants you to take her up to the lodge. Can you do that, or should I get... Get who, Louis Holper? his wife snapped, stepping into the kitchen. She was already untying the strings of her apron. I guess I'm not crippled up yet, and I'll thank you not to tell her ladyship that I am. She turned to Adele and half curtsied, half bowed. Stepping to the outside door, she said, If you'll come this way, it's just up to the top of the ridge. They went out in file, Mistress Holper in the lead and Tovera closing the door behind them. A score of locals, men and women both, waited in the street talking nervously. When they saw Holper and her companions, one called, Mitzi, what's going on? That's for people whose business it is, Susie Lanes, Mistress Holper said. Which isn't you nor me, either one. You ought all to go home. I'm taking our visitors up to the lodge, and we don't need help doing that. Adele wondered how much political say women had on Ischia. That the elder and counselors were all men might be chance. Four was a small sample. Still, she'd noticed in the past that the farther you got from the centers of civilization, the less likely you were to find gender equality. That didn't bother Adele particularly. It was simply data. In addition to taking a detached attitude about most things, she was always aware that the pistol in her pocket gave her the power of life or death over anyone who came within fifty yards or so of her. She smiled. There had been times where that was a surprisingly comforting thought. Stone steps at the back of the house led up to a track as substantial as the one from the harbor, 
It was wide enough for two, so Adele chose to walk beside their guide. We use the lodge for gatherings, you know, Mistress Holper said as she trudged briskly upward. Weddings and the like, parties. It's a nice place. We treated your friends just as good as if they was our own. She breathed deeply and looked at Adele. Your ladyship, she asked. Is it going to be all right? I know it's not my place to ask, but we've all been so frightened when we heard that Cinnabar was coming down on us. We should never have done it, we know that. But it looked like the only way, and that know-it-all Schweitzer, he kept saying it'd be fine. It'll be fine. She spat. And where is our Darrell now, she said, hiding in his own root cellar, I hear. Captain Leary's offer is very fair, Adele said. So long as your community wants peaceful trade, that's what you'll have. She wondered if she should have explained that she and Daniel didn't represent Cinnabar. Quite apart from the fact that the mistaken assumption was to the benefit of Daniel's position, Adele herself had the authority of the Leary Enterprises. That wasn't precisely the Republic of Cinnabar, but Adele suspected that Quarter Leary could move the Senate in any direction he chose in dealing with worms like the Monfiore clan of Ischia. Oh, that'll be a blessing, Holper said. You can't know what a blessing that will be. Because of the steep slope near the top of the ridge, they had been unable to see the lodge for some minutes. The paved track ended in a stone staircase to the right. When Adele started up the steps beside Mistress Holper, the lodge rose into view ahead of them. A husky man got up from a wicker chair as they approached. Hey, Mitzi, he said. A long baton leaned against the side of the building, but he didn't have a gun. Are you spelling me? These are the envoys, Phil, Holper said. Heavens be praised, I think we're shut out of this filthy business. I'm Lady Mundy, Adele said, since it didn't appear that their guide would think to introduce her. With my aid, we're here to see the prisoners. The lodge had waist-high stone walls and louvered windows, closed at the moment, above them to the roof of structural plastic. It would be simple enough to break a couple windows and crawl out, but it couldn't be done without enough noise to alert the guard with a riot stick. We treat them as nice as you please, Holper said as Phil opened the padlock, closing the chain which bound the handles of the double doors. You'll see if they don't say that. There isn't much reason for them to break out, is there? said Tovera, eyeing the situation with her usual amused detachment. Do they even know what planet they're on? Look, this was none of my idea, the guard said. I'm just up here because I'm a citizen, you see. He threw the door open and stepped aside, turning his face away so that he didn't have to meet his visitor's eyes. Mistress Holper said, I'll wait here with Phil. Take all the time you want. I'll wait out here, Tovera said to Adele as she entered the building. Her smile might have been described as pitying, though pity was as difficult to associate with Tovera as love would be. I'm Lady Mundy from Cinnabar, Adele said, addressing the hostages. They must have gotten to their feet when they heard the door rattle. My colleague Captain Leary and I are here to secure your release. The details are being worked out now. The Monfiores must by now realize how badly they had miscalculated. Nonetheless, they were going to benefit from their piracy, their kidnapping. Adele had never been concerned about fairness. She had been born to privilege, then had spent a comparable length of time in abject poverty through no fault of her own. Both of those states were facts. 
Fairness and justice were matters for philosophers to discuss, not for librarians and certainly not for politicians. Well, we've waited long enough, said the rather pretty young man who must be Penning Almer, aide to Mistress Tibbs of the regiment. The woman in a pantalarian naval dress uniform, rather the worse for wear now, would be Lieutenant Angelotti of the Freccia, while the heavyset man of fifty was Colonel Bourbon, despite his civilian clothes. Bourbon was the only one who mattered, so it was to him that Adele said, I'm afraid, Colonel, that the delay in our arrival is less surprising than the fact that we've arrived at all. Colonel Merciello, as he now calls himself, was something less than enthusiastic about getting you back. That bastard, Bourbon said, but he sounded more bitter than angry. He ground his right fist into his left hand as though he were pulverizing something into a mortar rather than smashing it with a hammer. I didn't trust him, not a bit, but I thought it was safer to leave him in charge on Corsera for a couple weeks than it would have been to put him together with a hunter ruling Karst. You mean it's your fault that we've been stranded here for three months? Almer said. As with Lieutenant Angelotti's uniform, Almer's swirlingly loose civilian garments had been pulled and wrinkled during captivity. Whatever the fabric was, it lost its sheen when it stretched. A couple weeks indeed. When can we go? Angelotti asked Adele. Her hands were pressed together unconsciously, making Adele wonder whether the lieutenant had a personal reason to want to be back on Corsera. In Angelotti's case, and in most cases involving women of childbearing age, personal reason generally meant a sexual relationship. With men of a similar age, greed was an equally probable cause. As I say, there are details to work out, Adele said. It wouldn't hurt for you to get your luggage together now, because I'm sure that Captain Leary intends to leave as soon as we've made the arrangements. She supposed another person would have said that it would only be a short time. Logically, that was true, but there was no lack of evidence that most people behaved illogically at least some of the time. Luggage, Almer said. He tugged out the legs of his pantaloons with a theatrical gesture. We have nothing but what was with us in the hostel on Dace. We weren't allowed to get our baggage from the ship, meager as even that would have been. Almer turned to Colonel Bourbon. He said, You were probably right. The hunter would have been more than willing to put Murciello in power on Corsera if he offered them enough. And from what I've seen of Murciello, he'd offer everything anybody else on Corsera had to get power himself. You and we have had our differences, Bourbon, but as between gentlemen. Almer is a fop and a petulant little prig. Adele thought, but he isn't a fool after all. Her respect for Mistress Tibbs, who had sent the young man as her agent, went up. Speaking for myself, Bourbon said, grinning wearily, I'd just assume that Murciello had been cooped up here for the past two months. On the other hand, I would have tried to get him back, and who knows where that might have led. You've been successful in arranging for the missiles then, Adele said. Oh yes, Bourbon said. The price is steep but we've spread the payments out over 25 years, and the junta finally agreed to take the payment in exemption from transport tariffs as soon as Corsera is at peace again. While the Pantelarians are on the planet, we'll have to pay in copper delivered to Karst at our own expense. But I hope that a year, or at most two, will end that. After the missiles arrive, of course. If I may ask, Lady Mundy, said Almer with an unpleasant smile, you said you and Captain Leary were from Cinnabar. What is Cinnabar's involvement on Corsera? Not at all a fool. 
The Republic is not involved, Adele said crisply. My colleague and I came to Coursera in our private capacities on behalf of the transformationist community. When we learned of the situation regarding yourselves and the war more generally, we volunteered to negotiate your release ourselves. Almer pursed his lips. Before the question he was framing could reach his tongue, Tovera said loudly, Good afternoon, Elder Paul. That's the leader of the gang, Angelotti said, turning to the door as Adele opened it. Paul strode in, looking exultant. Colonel, he said to Bourbon, I apologize to you and your colleagues. We have wronged you. I have wronged you. But I hope that sometime in the future we will be able to make it up to you. For now, let me say that you are free to go. Captain Leary's ship waits in the harbor to carry you home. Colonel Bourbon picked up a small fabric case. He paused in the door long enough to clasp hands with Paul on his way past. Neither Almer nor Angelotti showed that courtesy, but then the Monfiores weren't really owed it. Adele and Tovera followed the former prisoners down the track. It would be good to leave Ischia, but Adele didn't feel the urgency that the Corsirans seemed to. If we get off safely, she said to Tovera, I'll consider this a job well done. If we don't, said Tovera, smiling again, perhaps I'll have a chance to kill a few people. I win either way. I'm glad you're showing a positive attitude, said Adele. They were both joking, in their fashions. That was another entry in our complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, to Christopher Rocchio, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And the gentle rises of a milk-chocolate sea strewn with the gumdrop wreckage of a fleet that pushed the envelope of candy schooner technology to the edge of yumminess and beyond, plus a cosmic cornucopia of thanks and gratitude to David Weber, author of Shadow of Victory. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. Thank you.